0: an old, decrepit theatre down the end of a dark, deserted alley. On the thirteenth night of every month, Baron Sordor throws open his theatre doors to the lucky few invited to see the show. The crowd are slowly ushered inside and take their seats, whispering in nervous expectation. Then the music starts to rise and the red velvet curtains are drawn aside. A dark figure strides to the edge of the stage and the audience gasps in hushed anticipation. Because when the clock strikes midnight, it's time for Baron Sordor's Theatre of the Doomed!
1: Thank you, dear Alphys, and good evening, honored guests. I am your host, Baron Vladimir Sordor. Welcome to another night at the Theater of the Doomed. I hope that you are prepared for what awaits you, for our show is not for the faint of heart. Tonight, we will be traveling back in time to the 1950s for an atomic age account of technological terror. But be warned, dear audience, you must grasp hold of reality tight. For if you don't, tonight's tale might reach into your very mind and peel back the layers of sanity till you are left but a simpering, sniveling shell. <laughs> Get ready for a journey into mind bending madness that will push you past the edge of reasoning and understanding. I present to you, dear audience, the broadcast.
2: The Davis Air Force Base was a 12,000 square mile military facility located deep in the Black Rock Desert of Nevada, 15 minutes drive from the sleepy town of Dead Horse. It was designated top secret. Now the base itself wasn't top secret. Everybody knew it was there. I mean, you couldn't hide something so big. It was visible from space. But what went on there was. Officially, it was listed as a proving ground for USAF experimental aircraft. Dozens of hangars and landing strips housing some of the most cutting-edge military aircraft in the world. Almost 2,500 personnel, both military and civilian, lived on the base in a sprawling housing facility known as Edge City. But none of them knew what was really going on at Davis Air Force Base, or that they were there merely as a diversion for prying eyes. In fact, only 18 people, Including the base commander, knew about the highly classified Site R laboratory, which was located deep within the Bedrock Mountain facility, situated in a remote corner of the base. Bedrock Mountain was a triple peaked granite monolith that rose almost 10,000 feet above the surrounding Black Rock Desert. There was only one way in or out through a set of 25 ton blast doors designed to deflect a 30 megaton nuclear explosion. Now, the other laboratories buried beneath Bedrock Mountain were all top-secret. They housed the government's research into cutting-edge military technology, including ultrasonic weaponry, thermonuclear bombs, energy weapons and spaceflight-capable vehicles. But Site R was the most clandestine of all, deemed compartmented clearance, the highest clearance possible. This facility housed a project designated Hummingbird. Hummingbird was charged with the creation of the world's first time machine, a machine known as the Westcott device. Wednesday, the 1st of April, 1955. The control room for the Site R laboratory was impressive to behold. It was a 60 foot long curved concrete room lit from above by rows of fluorescent lights which gave the space a cold and futuristic feel. The low hum of a massive machine droned somewhere deep beneath the floor, like the heartbeat of some unseen colossal contraption. It was unsettling. The normally bustling room was all but empty today. Most of the space was occupied by the -the state-of-the-art Wells One supercomputer, a massive machine of whirling tapes and flashing lights and banks and banks of interconnected racks filled with vacuum tubes, circuitry and magnetic cores. But what was most impressive was the viewing gallery. The inside wall was a floor-to-ceiling window with an array of control panels and workstations before it. Outside the massive window, a cone-shaped capsule was suspended by a series of gantries above a concrete-lined shaft that seemed as if it were bottomless. Dr Vernon Harper stood before a small group of dignitaries who were gathered at a long table in the centre of the control room. They were the Base Commander Colonel Desmond Harris, General John Pickett, CIA Director Nathan Booker and a special envoy from the Office of the President, Shirley Gibson. Vernon Harper was in his early thirties, tall and rake thin, with receding slicked black hair and a pencil-thin moustache. There was an air of confidence about him, and despite his young age, he seemed totally at ease heading such an important government project.
3: You are gathered here to witness history. Quite literally, ten years ago our country fought a war against fascism and imperialism, a war that engulfed the entire world and cost the lives of tens of millions of people. To end that war... We had to win a race to master the atom. And thanks to scientists like Oppenheimer and the men of the Manhattan Project, we were able to ensure our freedom and our way of life. But now there is a new threat. Communism, its insidious tentacles are spreading across the world. And right now in laboratories, just like this one, scientists are scrambling to master a new type of power, a temporal power in a race that may become our greatest threat since World War II. Project Hummingbird is how we are going to win this race. This project is the combination of 20 years of theoretical and practical work that sprung from a paper I wrote in college when I was 15 years old. I present to you today the Westcott device, the world's first time machine, an invention that when tested here in four days time will change mankind forever.
2: Dr. Harper motioned to the grand machine outside the viewing windows. The gathered dignitaries seemed taken aback and fidgeted and cleared their throats uncomfortably. Air Force General John Pickett was the first to talk. Let me get this
4: straight. We came all this way and you're telling us you built a time machine, son. Like
3: something from a science fiction book? (laughs) Is that so hard to believe, Director Booker? If I told you ten years ago we could make a bomb so powerful it would light up the sky like the sun and vaporize an entire city, you would have laughed at me. And yet,
0: here we are. Well, that's different now, isn't it? Bombs they're a real thing, but this? I mean, it all sounds like children's stories. No offence intended.
2: None taken. The gathered dignitaries looked anything but impressed by the fantastical nature of the project. Only Special Envoy Shirley Gibson seemed interested in hearing more of what Dr. Harper had to say. Gentlemen, we've come all this way to hear the man speak. I'm sure the US government isn't funding this project without a little faith. Can you explain to us how this works, Dr. Harper?
3: Yes, yes, of course. In layman's terms, the Westcott device is essentially an energy generator that draws its power from the electrons in the atmosphere, focusing them to create an incredibly high-powered discharge that will bend space and time and allow a person to move from one point in the temporal field to another.
2: The General John Pickett nodded and smiled at this.
3: Go on. Our experiment is simple. The Westcott device is built into this mountain. Beneath our feet is its power source, which consists of four stacked engines, if you will. Each engine is a two-mile ring of plasmatic resonators that fires electrical energy into a high-voltage electromagnetic capacitor at the bottom of the shaft you see just outside the window. This capacitor stores the charge till it reaches 1.21 billion joules and fires a plasmatic burst at a single point no larger than a nanoparticle. This focused energy will form a gravity well so dense it will be similar to a black hole creating a singularity that bends both space and time. Precisely 18.188 seconds before that charge is released, the capsule, you see just out there, is dropped down that one mile shaft. As the capsule nears the bottom of the shaft, it will be travelling at 392.77 miles per hour. However, When the singularity is formed, it will accelerate the capsule almost instantaneously to a temporal velocity of 186,000 miles per second,
2: propelling the craft forward one minute in time. The assembled dignitaries looked at each other in bewilderment. Sounds like science fiction to me.
0: (laughs) Okay, let's pretend I fully understand what you're talking about. How the hell do you know the thing is going to go exactly one minute forward in time? Is there a pilot in there
3: navigating? Yes, and that's a good question, Director Booker. Unfortunately, this is a one-way trip. The craft itself cannot generate the power needed to recreate the space-time singularity in return. So, for safety reasons, the craft will be manned by a canine test pilot. In answer to your question, how we navigate, it's pretty simple. The time displacement the capsule will experience while it's exposed to the temporal singularity equates to travelling roughly 700 years a minute, or 11.6 years a second. So, to move forward in time for one minute, we would need to create the singularity for approximately one picosecond, which equates to about one trillionth of a second. Can you move backward in time, or just forward? Well, the past, present, and future They all exist at the same time. So it's just a matter of accessing the proper point in space-time. What the hell does that mean? It's my contention that the universe and life within it is not an organic thing that's constantly changing and morphing. Time doesn't pass or flow like a river, but rather, everything is ever-present, all at once. Everything that ever was, is, and will be, is already out there. We just have to know how to find it.
0: That makes no sense whatsoever, son.
2: So, if this machine can travel in time, can it change the past? Can we go back and kill Hitler and stop the war?
3: An infinite number of worlds and possibilities exists all at the same time, and without contradiction, because everything that can happen has happened or will happen. So, in short, the answer is yes. But the debate about the morals of how this machine should be used is for another time. Nevertheless, gentlemen... Rest assured that the successful development of the Westcott device will ensure that we as a country will continue to experience a bright and fruitful future unfettered by any foreign entity.
0: The stuff you eggheads do makes my brain hurt. How do we know this thing is safe? Ten years ago, I remember Oppenheimer saying he was worried about setting the atmosphere on fire.
3: I assure you there is no chance of an accident happening, unlike the Trinity test. This will be a controlled generation of power, with fail-safes put into place to control the experiment during every phase. Each engine is installed with a coupling we call a flux inhibitor. It will automatically trip and shut down if the energy output is deemed dangerous, so that any surge in power beyond its designated 302,500,000 joules will instantly be detected and the experiment stopped. Furthermore, the capacitor itself has a separate kill switch, which will ground all power it is storing if it exceeds the 1.21 billion joules charge. In short, the Westcott device presents no present danger, and if our experiment is successful, will ensure our country's continued place as a superpower among the nations of the world for generations to come.
2: Well, in theory, your experiment sounds very promising, Dr. Harper, but we will expect to see a successful test come Saturday morning. You deliver us a working experiment, and I guarantee next round of funding will be approved. But if you deliver us a dud, well, the Pentagon isn't in the business of second chances. Are we clear?
3: Crystal clear, ma'am.
5: And now, a message from our sponsors.
6: They said it could never happen, but it did.
1: They said we were safe, but But we weren't.
5: Nuclear
1: Cannibal 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 Holocaust. Holocaust. Witness a night of brutality. A terrifying nightmare of radioactive monsters (laughs) set loose in an unbridled Ah. orgy of mayhem and murder
6: nuclear cannibal holocaust see it if you dare showing now at the galaxy twin drive-in rated x
2: vernon harper stepped off the bright silver shuttle bus and out onto the dusty streets of edge city he was hit immediately by a blast of afternoon desert heat it was like walking into a furnace edge city was a sight to behold It was as if the government had picked up a suburb and dropped it in the middle of nowhere. There was street after street of picturesque houses, with manicured lawns and white picket fences, each home painted a different shade of pastel. There was a school, a church and a diner, a little shopping centre and even a bowling alley and a cinema. If it wasn't for the never-ending expanse of desert and the explosives tests that happened like clockwork at 10, 12 and 3, you'd swear you were in any small town in the USA and not on a military base. School was out, and the sound of playing children filled the air. Vernon took his time walking the three blocks to his house, his mind still back at the lab and going through the seemingly endless checklist of tests, diagnostics and calculations he was going to have to perform... ...before the experiment on Saturday morning. Vernon was happy how the meeting had gone today... ...but was disappointed that they could only see his creation's value as a weapon. The Westcott device represented so much more for humanity. It was a chance to create a utopia... ...to unite the people of the world... ...and usher a future of prosperity, peace and discovery. He wished they could see that. But that was the irony of doing business with the military... They were the only ones that had the budget to fund major scientific breakthroughs, but they were not interested in scientific breakthroughs at all. They only wanted weapons, power, means to control. But Vernon was smarter than them. He'd seen what they'd done to Oppenheimer after he gave them the A-bomb. How they'd called him a communist and taken his work, then tossed him aside. If the experiment worked on Saturday... He was not only going to ensure he was an integral part of the project moving forward, but also that he was one of the people who decided how it was going to be used. Otherwise, he'd make sure the Westcott device was never going to work again. Vernon rounded the corner onto South Messer Street and walked towards his house. It was the third on the left, a small, unremarkable ranch-style house painted pale green with a neatly trimmed lawn and a white picket fence. Vernon didn't drive, so unlike most of the other houses on the block, there was no car in his driveway. When Vernon wasn't working, he liked to spend time in his garden and the front of the house was adorned by a magnificent bed of sunflowers. He stopped at his front gate to check the mail, smiled politely at his neighbour, who was watering his lawn, then proceeded to walk up the path towards his front door then the strangest thing happened there was a burst of light so bright it was as if a camera had flashed before his eyes to take his picture vernon stopped in his tracks and gasped at the sensation his nose filling with the smell of burning ozone it was metallic like chlorine then he felt a deep concussive blast issue from somewhere very far away it shook through the earth and vibrated up his legs to his knees He noticed there were butterflies dancing in the air around the sunflowers. They were glowing in the broad daylight. He stepped towards them as if in a trance. The butterflies swooped and glided through the air, their orange and black wings following the whims of the spring wind. They were surrounded by St. Elmo's fire, a flickering blue halo engulfing their delicate bodies. Amazed, Vernon extended his hand and watched one alight upon it. It sat on his finger for the briefest of moments, opening and closing its wings as the azure corona surrounding it intensified. Then all at once, it burst into flame and curled and wilted like an autumn leaf before crumbling into dust. Vernon fell to his knees, cradling the perfect ashen creature. It held its form for a moment before disappearing on the wind.
4: What on earth are you doing?
2: The sound of the voice behind him snapped Vernon out of his trance. It was Dr Prem Diwali, the second in charge at Project Hummingbird and his closest friend at Davis Air Force Base. At the sound of Dr Diwali's voice, Vernon stood up and wiped the grass from his knees, smiling and trying to hide his embarrassment. Prem Diwali was almost six feet tall, with a dark complexion and even darker eyes eyes so deep that you could lose yourself in them. He was one of the most brilliant engineering minds Vernon Harper had ever encountered, and a natural leader. They had worked together for the past five years on the Westcott device, and Vernon had come to rely on Prem more than anyone else at the base.
3: Oh, um, nothing. I... I thought I saw a butterfly.
2: How did the meeting go? Prem was covering the evening shift at the lab so Vernon could get some rest.
3: Well, they were resistant at first, just as we expected.
2: Did they understand the presentation? Vernon glanced over at the sunflowers, expecting them to burst into flames again. But they didn't.
4: Vernon, are you listening? Did you do the space-time demonstration
3: with the folded paper and pen? Hmm? No, 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 I, I forgot. You
4: forgot? Come on, we rehearse that, Vernon. They're military, not scientists.
2: Vernon shrugged, still preoccupied by the sunflowers. He looked over at them again. They were normal. The butterflies were normal. Everything was normal. He couldn't understand what had just happened. Vernon,
3: are you listening? I can explain.
4: I can't believe this. We agreed that attempting to explain the mechanics of the many-world block theory of the universe was tantamount to professional suicide. It just came up. I don't even know what to say.
3: You don't have to say anything. They've already approved. We get funding pending a successful test of the device.
2: Prem's eyes lit up and a smile cracked his face from ear to ear.
3: Really? We got the
4: funding? Yes, we
2: got the funding. Prem laughed out loud and grabbed Vernon and hugged him. Vernon breathed him in deep, savouring the moment.
3: This is incredible. Congratulations, Vernon. You deserve it. I deserve it. This is our project, Prem. We deserve it.
2: Prem glanced at his watch and his smile faded. My bus
3: will be here in a minute.
2: I have got
4: to
3: go. All
2: right.
3: Remember to check the lag on engine four, OK? I'll see you tomorrow at noon.
2: Vernon watched Dr Diwali run up the street and disappear around the corner towards the bus stop. He lingered for a moment, very disturbed by what he had seen. Hallucination could be a sign of anything from schizophrenia to dementia or Parkinson's disease. But he was under an enormous amount of stress, maybe more than he'd ever been in his life. And the mind had strange ways of coping with stress. Yes, that was it, he thought to himself. He just needed some rest. Vernon nodded uneasily and made his way into his little house. By the time he'd walked inside, he'd put the strange event completely out of his mind. As soon as Vernon walked inside, he put his briefcase down at the door and made his way into his living room and started working. He converted it into a home workspace and filled the room with blackboards and books and papers. Vernon worked like a man possessed until exactly 6 p.m. when an alarm sounded and snapped him out of his trance. He made his way to the kitchen, selected himself a frozen fried chicken TV dinner from the icebox and put it in the oven to cook. Then he went outside. Unfurled his hose and went about watering his lawn and flowers. By the time he came back inside, it was almost seven. Vernon retrieved his dinner from the oven, gingerly peeled back the foil, and savoured the smell of chicken, whipped potatoes, vegetables, and apple cobbler. He made his way to the sitting room at the front of his house, sat in the lone chair in the room, and turned on the dial on the large wooden radio that sat on the table nearby. It hummed gently and came to life with a warm glow and a white hiss of static. Vernon followed the same routine every night unless he was working. His favourite radio show aired at 7pm and played some of his favourite musical pieces. Tonight was one he was especially looking forward to. La Notte dei Mili Maniaci by Innocenzo Graziano. The radio warmed up and the static faded into the first strains of the cantata. Vernon settled back into his seat as he chewed on a drumstick and let his thoughts drift away with the music. He had just taken a mouthful of whipped potatoes when a burst of static jolted him from his tranquility. He tried his best to ignore it, distracting himself by poking at his apple cobbler, then noticing with some dismay it was still frozen in the centre. But the static only got worse. When he could ignore it no more, he set his tray down with annoyance and leaned over to tune the radio. There was another burst of static as his station disappeared completely. Vernon tuned the dial back to the frequency his station normally broadcast, but there was nothing. He moved the dial to another station, but it was static there too. Then all of a sudden, a man's voice burst through the noise.
0: We interrupt your regular programming to bring you this. report.
2: Vernon leaned in and carefully tuned the radio, trying to get a clearer signal.
0: There are unconfirmed reports, that a huge explosion at the day.
2: Vernon felt a cold chill run down his spine. Was there an accident here at the base?
0: But the reports indicate a massive blast was heard as far as-
2: Terrified, Vernon ran to the window and pulled open the curtains. It was calm outside the last brushstrokes of twilight lingering upon the horizon. Cars drove down the streets and families walked and chatted merrily along the sidewalks with their dogs like it was any other day. Vernon turned back to the radio, his eyes wide with fear and confusion.
0: Initial casualties have been estimated to be up to 60,000 people.
2: The hiss of static rose sharply again before it gave way to the performance he had just been listening to as if the news broadcast he had just heard had never even happened.
3: What in the world is going on?
2: The events of the afternoon with the butterfly flashed in his mind. Something was wrong. A dark and terrible explanation for these inexplicable events came into his mind, but he dismissed it immediately, too scared to allow himself to even consider it to be true. Instead, he picked up the phone and called his laboratory. How can I connect your call? Uh,
3: This is Dr Vernon Harper, ID 334063610628525, secure line.
2: The phone went silent. Dr Diwali answered on the third ring.
3: This is Dr Diwali. Prem, it's Vernon, is everything okay? Everything's fine. Why? What's going on? The device. There hasn't been an accident, has there?
4: An accident? No. We just finished engine diagnostics. Green across the board. Are you sure? Yes. What's going on? Is
3: there a problem? Should we shut down?
2: Vernon breathed a sigh of relief. No.
3: No, don't worry about it. I'm just checking in. I'll see you tomorrow morning.
2: Vernon hung up the phone and peeked outside the window again. It was nighttime, and the neighbourhood was peaceful.
5: Now, a message
6: from our sponsors. Do you believe there's a face on Mars? That the moon landing was faked? Or that there are underground alien bases hidden behind planet Earth? Do you believe that a race of cat people control our minds from a secret spaceship orbiting Venus? Are you a seeker of truth but worried about the government controlling your thoughts with fluoride telephones and fillings in your teeth? Then you need to listen to a podcast that pulls back the veil and tells you the real truth. Fully researched on the internet by experts in hyperdimensional physics, our podcast is the most underground and top secret available today. In fact, it's so top secret, we can't even tell you its name, but here's a clue.
1: The following information has been removed as it is deemed classified and top secret. For more, go to www.bloodbrainsandaliens.com.
2: Vernon Harper spent the night in a fluster. He searched obsessively, tuning up and down the radio dial, trying to locate the phantom broadcast to no avail. He listened to every newscast he could find for information on the explosion. He even rang the station, but no one knew what he was talking about. Then he went door to door and quizzed his neighbours, including Prem Diwali's pregnant wife Priya, hoping someone might have heard something. no one had. Vernon even tried to use his security clearance to glean more information from his contacts in Washington, but no matter what he tried or who he asked, no one seemed to have any knowledge about the mysterious explosion. There was no rational explanation he could think of for what he'd heard. It was as if the news broadcast had never happened. Around midnight, he decided to get some rest. Vernon tried again to pass the strange events off as simple stress, but this time his mind would not be so easily dissuaded. He spent the next few hours tossing and turning until he could take no more and got up and dressed for the day. He spent the rest of the early morning before dawn working obsessively, desperate to focus on anything other than the gnawing feeling of dread in the back of his mind. Vernon Harper arrived at the Site R laboratory in Bedrock Mountain a little after 11am Thursday morning. The time displacement experiment was less than 42 hours away. His full team were present in the lab, including Dr Prem Devali. Today, they were testing safety protocols and performing a dry run on the engines and capacitor. Vernon felt on edge, frayed, unravelling like a snagged thread of a jumper and his mood with his co-workers was prickly and irritable. They began their testing by firing up each one of the engines. The two-mile-long rings of plasmatic resonators came to life with a powerful ethereal hum, the frequency rippling out across the laboratory floor. Its sound grew slowly in intensity as if a Titan had awakened from a deep slumber. Suddenly. Bright light flooded the shaft outside the viewing window and started to oscillate intensely. Vernon watched the control panel carefully as the power output grew.
3: Slowly, slowly...
2: The floor beneath Vernon's feet began to vibrate, the shudder so intense it felt like pins and needles in his legs. As the power grew languid tongues of plasma curled out across the void beyond the windows like a carpet being unfurled. Then all at once, the engine hit its limit and lightning flashed intensely again and again between the capacitor and the resonator. With each successive return, the strikes grew faster and faster until a dazzling ribbon of pure plasma formed outside the control room. As the engine discharged into the capacitor, Vernon ordered the next one to power. Each, in turn, delivered their charge till the capacitor was at its maximum limit. At that precise moment, Vernon ordered the capacitor to ground its charge and the engines to be stood down. The hum slowly died and the lights outside the viewing window fell dark. The lab erupted in cheers at the successful test and Dr Prem Diwali rushed over to congratulate Vernon Harper.
4: Congratulations, my friend. The test was a triumph. You must
2: be thrilled. He looked in Vernon's eyes. They were bloodshot, dark and troubled. He looked like someone on the edge of their sanity. Vernon, are you okay? You're concerning me.
3: I'm fine. I'm... It's the stress.
2: Vernon tried to smile, but couldn't. His mind was still troubled by the events of yesterday. He couldn't stop thinking about what they might mean. More than anything, he wanted to tell Prem what he had seen, but he couldn't. Not yet, anyway. Not until he'd figured out what was really happening.
3: I didn't sleep well last night, that's all.
4: All right, that's it. We're taking a break.
3: What do you
2: mean?
4: You and me, we're going out for a drink. You need to unwind. You look like you're going to have a panic attack.
3: We can't leave. What about the tests?
4: It's going to take till tomorrow morning to correlate the results and you and I being here isn't going to speed that up.
3: I don't know if that's a good idea. Come on!
4: I brought my car. I'm parked up in the lot.
2: Raymond's Bar & Grill was the only bar in the town of Deadhorse. It was an Air Force bar and frequented regularly by most of the base personnel. Vernon and Prem sat in one of the far corners of the room, the space lit by a few dim bulbs that cast long shadows across the peeling wallpaper. The air was thick and musty with smoke and the smell of stale beer, and a jukebox played crackling jazz records in the corner. The table they sat at was small and wobbly, its surface sticky from spilled drinks and remnants of cigarette ash. How's your drink? Vernon picked up the Manhattan that was sitting before him and sipped it nervously, as if he was out of place in the dingy bar. It's good. Have you been here before?
3: No, no, it's my first time. I'm not normally much of a drinker.
4: Well, are you ready now, or do you want to have another drink before you tell me what's going on? What do you mean? Don't play coy with me, Vernon. I know you too well. Ever since that meeting yesterday with the military brass, you've been acting positively certifiable. First, I find you in your front yard on your knees swatting at invisible butterflies. Then a few hours later, you call the laboratory sounding like a madman
2: wanting to know if the machine had blown up. I'm not a fool, Vernon. I need to know what's going on. Vernon's head swam. The lack of sleep, the stress and the alcohol were making it hard for him to concentrate. He wanted to tell him what he had seen, but he was worried how Prem might react. He wanted to tell him a lot of things, but he knew he couldn't. Lying was the best course of action.
3: I'm worried about what the military might do with the machine if our test is successful.
2: At least that was true, he thought to himself. Vernon was very worried about what would happen when they got their hands on his creation.
4: That's totally understandable, Vernon. But surely you must have thought about the possibilities of that before you created a working temporal device.
3: Yes, I did. I I suppose my egotistical desire to see if I could build the machine outweighed my moral compass to decide if I should build the machine. And and now that it's upon us, I, I think they're coming back into balance.
2: Vernon finished his drink and waved to the bartender for another. Prem lit a cigarette and stared at him strangely. Are you sure that's what's worrying you? The bartender brought Vernon his drink, and he took a deep gulp. He felt flush, and tired, and happy, all at once.
3: I promise.
4: Tell me, Vernon, what drove you towards the idea of time travel? It seems so out of place for a man like you.
3: Why? Why is it so out of place for a man like me?
4: It's so impractical, and you're not. This is the work of a dreamer, not a man of science.
3: I'm a dreamer. I think everyone is if you give them a chance. For me, it was a thought that there was a world out there, somewhere where everyone could be free, a place where there were no limits on a person or or who they could or couldn't be in their lives, a place where everyone could be themselves.
2: He smiled at Prem and gazed into his dark eyes, hoping he understood what he'd always wanted him to know, but was never brave enough to tell him. But it wasn't just about being brave. It was dangerous to have a secret in this day and age with McCarthy and his witch hunt. The Red Scare was real. Being a communist could see you unemployed, blacklisted or in jail, no matter who you were. Being gay was even worse.
3: What about you? Why did you come to work on the Westcott device? To work with you, of course. Your work is brilliant
2: and I only ever wanted to work with the best. Prem smiled broadly at Vernon and he reached out for his gin and tonic. Vernon's heart beat so loud in his chest and on an impulse, Vernon reached out and touched his hand. As his fingers touched Prem's, he felt them almost spark reminding Vernon of their wonderful machine being able to draw electricity from the very air itself. And it was electricity for one perfect moment. It's getting lit. Prem withdrew his hand from Vernon's and folded them neatly in his lap. Vernon was left exposed and vulnerable, his hand extended in mid-air across the table. Unsure of what to do, he smiled at Prem and reached for his cigarettes nearby. Do you mind? No, not at all. Look, we should probably go. Lots to do in the morning. Vernon lit the cigarette and inhaled, (coughs) coughing and choking on the smoke. He'd never had a cigarette in his life. They paid the bill, and Vernon reluctantly followed Prem outside. Shame, regret and self-consciousness all crashing down upon him in a tidal wave of emotion. He felt feverish. His heart pounded and his knees were weak. But more than anything, he felt stupid. It was near dusk on the main street of Dead Horse. The road was dusty and unpaved, lined by a small grocery store, a gas station and a few homes, all constructed from wood and corrugated metal. A flatbed truck was rumbling its way out of town, past a cowboy on a dun-coloured horse. In the distance, a little girl played hula hoop with her friends. Fear started to grip Vernon's heart. If Prem told anyone about what happened, he'd be ruined. Vernon quickened his pace and caught up to try and explain.
3: Look, Prem, about what happened, I'm a bit, I'm a bit drunk and I was just reaching for the cigarettes. I, I didn't mean to touch your hand like that.
2: Prem smiled like it was no big deal and turned to him to say. There was a sudden flash of light, brighter than the sun itself, followed by the sound of rolling thunder, much louder and more terrible than anything Vernon had ever felt before. Shocked, he stopped and turned towards the base. Time seemed to slow to a standstill. All at once, the air was sucked out of his lungs and an immense heat scorched and blackened everything around him. He tried to cry out but could not even draw a breath. In the distance, he saw the shock wave of a great concussive blast expand out towards him, rolling across the desert like some terrible cloud front, the noise building to a crescendo, so deafening he felt his eardrums explode and bleed. The air became like fire and everything ignited at once. The houses, the truck, the cowboy and his horse, and the little children. Even the air itself became an inferno. Vernon felt the skin on every part of his body shrivel, then blister and burn in an instant, while before him, in the distance, a great firestorm rose into the sky like the devil itself, before blasting out in all directions and consuming everything in a ferocious inferno of destruction, until there was only desolation left. Vernon, what
4: the hell are you doing? Snap out of it!
2: Vernon woke up from his trance like a child wakes from a nightmare he was on his knees in the dirt in the middle of the street people were looking at him
4: you were screaming what's going on
3: i don't i don't i don't know what's happening i think we need to get you to a doctor no 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 i, I just need to rest i haven't slept in days please just take me home
2: prem helped him to his feet and back to the car gone were any feelings of embarrassment All Vernon could feel now was impending doom.
1: Salutations, honored guests. I trust you are enjoying your evening at the Theater of the Doomed. While I'm sure you are eager to discover the cause of Dr. Harper's apocalyptic visions and the source of the mysterious radio broadcast, we are obliged at this moment to offer you a brief intermission. For those of you who have been gripping your seats in white-knuckled terror, we implore you, to please take the time to imbibe of a strong libation, or perhaps chase the dragon if you're so inclined, anything to calm those frazzled, jangled nerves. But be warned, what is about to transpire is not for sops or those with delicate constitutions. For you are about to face the cruel and paradoxical world of temporal travel when we return to Baron Sordor's Theater of the Doomed.
2: Vernon opened the front door of his house and walked inside a little before 7pm. It felt like he was having an out-of-body experience, like he was watching himself from afar. He stood in his hallway for several minutes, unsure of what to do, his mind racing through a million possibilities to try and explain what he had just seen. Then he looked at his watch. It was almost seven. He wondered if the broadcast would happen again. Vernon raced over to his sitting room and turned on the radio, sitting before it on his knees and tuning the dial, listening for something in the static. And then, just like the night before, it happened.
0: We interrupt your regular programming to bring you this special report. There are unconfirmed reports that shortly after 5 a.m. Saturday morning, there was a huge explosion at the Davis Air Force Base in Nevada.
2: Vernon felt his face go slack.
0: They engulfed several surrounding towns. Details at this point are still coming in, but early reports indicate a massive blast. A enormous 100-mile-wide fireball was seen Initial casualties have been estimated to be up to 60,000 people.
2: Vernon turned off the radio. His worst fear had come true. There was no other explanation for what had happened. The butterflies, the news reports and what he'd seen on the street of Dead Horse. It wasn't due to stress or lack of sleep. There could be no denying it any longer. Vernon got to his feet and walked over to one of the blackboards in his living room, scrubbing off the complex work, then scribbling mathematical equations furiously in yellow chalk until it was filled. He did the same with the next board and the one after until all four boards in the room were covered, front side and back, with an impossibly complex theorem. When it was complete, he stood back from the blackboards and read his work again, looking for a mistake, hoping against hope that something was wrong with his calculations but they were correct, it was true. And he wept like he did when he was young, tears tumbling down his cheeks, his brow furrowed and lips trembling, unable to draw breath as he howled like a frightened child. It took him close to 10 minutes to pull himself together. When he did, it was close to midnight. He picked up the phone and called Prem Diwali.
3: Prem, it's me. I need you to come over to my house.
4: What? What time is it?
3: Prem, I know it's late.
4: It's almost midnight, Vernon. I'm asleep.
3: I really need to speak to you. It can't wait.
4: I'll be over in 15 minutes.
2: Ten minutes later, Prem was sitting in Vernon's living room, bleary eyes, his hair dishevelled and still dressed in today's clothes. If he was annoyed, he didn't show it. Instead, he seemed genuinely concerned for his friend.
3: Thank you for coming over, Brem. I'm
2: worried about you, Vernon.
3: For the past two days, I've been having visions. I knew something was wrong. Vernon, if you need to speak to Please, let me finish. For the past two days, I've been having visions. Visions of the future. It all started yesterday when I saw a butterfly catch fire in the front yard and then disappear as if nothing had happened. That same night I heard part of a news report on the radio about an explosion that killed thousands of people and at first I thought it was just stress I wrote it off. You know, nervous reaction. But this afternoon I saw that very explosion with my own eyes and when I got home I heard more of that same news report. And then I realised, I'm not having visions. I'm seeing the future. Echoes of what will be when we test the Westcott device.
2: Prem looked at him with bewilderment, struggling to comprehend. I don't... I,
4: I'm sorry, this is very hard to understand. Are you telling me that you are seeing the future and that the test of the Westcott device on Saturday is going to fail?
3: I'm saying that the test is going to result in a catastrophe that will kill 60,000 people.
4: And you are saying this because you've seen the future? <laughs> oh, wow. This, this is a lot to take in.
3: I understand your scepticism.
4: <sighs> Can I ask you, Vernon, as a scientist, have you considered that perhaps it is you that is the problem, that you might be having some kind of nervous breakdown or something? I mean, in all fairness... You've been acting extremely erratically over the past few days, and I...
2: The math doesn't lie. Vernon guided Prem through his equations, walking him step by step through his theorem. At the end, he turned to him and said...
3: The many world block theory we have used to construct the Westcott device relies on the existence of every possible outcome of the past, present and future coexisting simultaneously. Everything that would, will and could ever be everywhere all at once... It seems that by simply using this device on Saturday, we have somehow created a nexus in these realities, a a converging point, if you will, that has allowed other dimensions to spill over into our own. The theorem I have shown you explains how this could happen, and because of it, I have seen the future. I have seen what will happen at 5 a.m. this Saturday morning when we test the Westcott device, and it is real. It is real unless we do something to change it. To change
4: it? If an infinite number of futures exist, then how can we know that this is the one that will happen when we test the device? We have seen the future! No, you have seen the future, Vernon. All I have is your word. What are you proposing?
3: If you believe me or not, there's a simple solution. Delay the test. Come with me tomorrow to see Colonel Harris and convince him to delay for 24 hours. That's all I'm asking. The news report said the accident would occur 5am Saturday. An extra day would give us a chance to recheck our work and make sure that it's safe. Please, please, one day. That is all I'm asking.
2: Prem rubbed his face in frustration and got to his feet. Okay, one day, I'll give
4: you that. But that's all you get. If the tests come back green on Sunday, we go. Agreed?
3: Agreed. Thank you, Prem.
4: You don't have to thank me, Vernon. We're a team. But if you see anything more... You have to promise you'll tell me and let me take you to a doctor.
0: So you're telling me that you want me to delay the test of a $1.6 billion priority government project for 24 hours, but you can't tell me why.
2: Vernon Harper and Prem Diwali sat in the office of Colonel Desmond Harris, the commander of Davis Air Force Base, and the head of Site R and every other clandestine project operating at the installation. Yes, sir. Colonel Harris laughed and chewed on his cigar, leaning back in his chair and enjoying the cool air as his desk fan oscillated slowly across the room.
0: Is there a problem I need to be aware of?
2: Yesterday's engine tests have given us some reasons for caution.
4: We think that a round of additional diagnostics should clear up anomalies we've encountered and guarantee a successful test of the device. We estimate we can have a system ready for
2: full operation by 5 a.m. Sunday morning. Colonel Harris nodded and mused what he'd heard for a moment, then looked at Vernon.
0: You concur with your associate,
3: Dr. Harper. I do.
2: Colonel Harris grinned broadly and puffed on his cigar, then picked up a file from his desk and held it up for the two scientists to see.
0: Hmm. Seems we got some confusion. Because I just read yesterday's output report from your team, and they say the device is A-OK and ready to go. So, is there something you're not telling me, gentlemen?
2: Colonel Harris leant forward on his desk and smiled.
0: In case you two forgot... We got the biggest swinging dicks from here to Washington out there ready to see you boys put on a show in less than 20 hours. So unless you start giving me a real reason to call off this test, we are going ahead of schedule.
2: Vernon started to speak, and Prem grabbed his arm. Let me handle this.
3: I've seen the future, Colonel. You what? This test is going to result in the deaths of 60,000 people unless we stop it. It's up to you, right now, to change the future, Colonel.
2: Colonel Harris's grin faded, and he removed his cigar from his mouth.
0: What the hell are you talking about, son?
2: Vernon, please don't. Vernon shrugged Prem aside and got to his feet, imploring Colonel Harris to listen to him.
3: At 5am, Saturday morning, the Westcott device is going to explode with a force 100 times larger than the blast over Hiroshima. It will wipe out half of the life in this state. We have only one chance to change the future. We have to act now. I hear you.
2: Colonel Harris nodded and smiled, indicating for Vernon to sit down.
3: So I, I know that this is hard to believe. No, oh, it's all
0: right. So you're in charge of this test, is that right, Dr. Harper?
3: Yes, sir. Yes, I am.
0: And you, Dr. DiValli, you agree with your colleague Dr. Harper here?
4: I do. I I know it sounds far-fetched, but all we're asking for is another day, sir. Dr. Harper...
0: Well, that's all I need to know.
2: Colonel Harris pressed the intercom button on his desk. Dr. Diwali tried to continue talking, but the Colonel held up his finger for him to wait. Yes, Colonel?
0: Gina. Can you send in Corporal Ellis when you get a moment?
2: Right away, Colonel.
0: Gentlemen, I gotta say, what you've told me today... Has got me real concerned about the safety of your project.
2: Both Vernon and Prem looked at each other and let out a sigh of relief.
0: So here's what I'm going to do. Effective immediately, you are both hereby relieved of command of Project Hummingbird.
3: What? Oh no! <laughs> you can't, <laughs> Colonel. Please. Furthermore, you don't understand. Th- th- Furthermore,
0: your behavior is such that frankly I question your intentions, gentlemen, and your allegiance. As the officer charged with the security of this facility, I am concerned that there may be some outside influence involved in your decision
3: making. Tens of thousands of people will die unless we stop that test. If you go ahead with this, Colonel, I am going to make sure that everyone knows that you're responsible for what's going to happen here tomorrow.
0: Is that right? Well, I don't take kindly to threats, son. How about this? I'm confining both of you to your quarters until after the test on Saturday. At which point, I'm going to recommend you face a formal investigation for acts of treason against these United States.
2: No, sir.
4: You've got it all wrong. I'm not a traitor. Get these two
0: out of my sight, Corporal.
2: Colonel Harris nodded at the large military police officer standing behind them to escort the two scientists from his office.
3: Please, sir. Don't do this. You're making a huge mistake. Gentlemen, if you'll please come with me.
5: Now, a message from our sponsors.
6: Italy's favorite psychedelic experimental hard rock band, Il Tororino Tarni, are back with a brand new album of mind-melting classics, Psychedelic Nightmare, featuring the hit songs, the Nightmares Behind the Doors of Perception, the ethereal planes of eternal pain, and the wild perversions of the Dark Lord Zoltan. Psychedelic Nightmare is a must-have for any fan of experimental, shoegazing, psychedelic, stoner, occult, acid, hypnagogic rock. Available now wherever good music is streaming.
2: The black Nash Ambassador Sedan sped down the dirt road away from the Air Force Base towards Edge City. Corporal Ellis sat in the front seat driving the car while Prem and Vernon sat in the back, their eyes glued to the blur of the desert outside the car. What the hell are we going to do?
3: I I don't know. Maybe we can... Maybe we can call the Colonel, get him to reconsider
2: about the test. Prem looked over at Vernon in complete disbelief.
4: Are you serious? Do you have any idea how much trouble we're in?
2: This will ruin me. Vernon continued staring at the desert outside the window, his brow furrowed in concentration. You're
3: right. He'll never reconsider. We need to take matters into our own hands. What the hell do you mean? Sixty thousand people are going to die tomorrow morning unless we do something about it. Their blood is on our hands. Unless we act now. Corporal
2: Ellis glanced up at the rearview mirror.
0: Is everything all right back there?
2: Everything's fine. The sedan began to slow as it approached the T intersection up ahead. To the south was Edge City. To the north was Bedrock Mountain and the Westcott Device.
4: Just trust me, all right? Vernon, please, whatever you're thinking about doing, I beg you
2: to reconsider. The car slowed as it reached the intersection and Corporal Ellis indicated to turn left. In one swift movement, Vernon leant forward in his seat and pulled Corporal Ellis' pistol from the holster on his hip.
0: What the hell?
2: The young MP slammed on the brakes and started to turn to try and grab his pistol from the prisoner behind him. He froze at the sound of the hammercock. Vernon, what the hell are you doing? Vernon had the pistol leveled at the back of the corporal's head.
0: Don't try it! Please, don't. Don't shoot me! Oh my God, what have you done? What needs to be done? Please, I'll just
3: let you go. Get out here, I, I I won't tell. Corporal, I need you to drive north. We're headed to the Bedrock Mountain Facility. Sir, I don't have the clearance. Just keep your eyes on the road and your mouth shut, Corporal. I don't want to hurt you, but I will if I have to. 60,000 people are about to die. I'm prepared to give my life to make sure that doesn't happen. Are you?
0: I don't want to die, sir.
3: Good! Good! Then keep moving!
4: Vernon, I beg you, reconsider. Please. I've got a wife and child. I don't
3: want to go to prison. Jesus Christ, Prem. They'll both be dead. If we don't stop this test, we'll all be dead. Don't you understand?
2: Prem nodded and swallowed hard, his hands shaking in his lap.
4: What are you going to do? If you sabotage the machine, they'll just fix it!
2: What happens if the test is a failure?
3: If the machine doesn't create the temporal portal, how how could that happen? Each engine is built to deliver 302,500,000 joules into the capacitor before they Earth to create the 1.21 billion joules charge that will form the temporal portal. If I rig the flux inhibitors and the control panel so that they look like the engine has delivered the full capacity of its charge, but in reality it's significantly less, say 20%, they won't understand what's happened. The output on the instrumentation will be correct, but the experiment will be a failure. They won't know why. You and I are the only two people with working knowledge of the machine. Without us, the experiment will be shelved. The Pentagon is not going to keep pouring money into a time machine that doesn't work. And how do you know that? They told me as much in the meeting the other day. Do you think it'll work? It has to.
2: The Black Sedan sped north towards Bedrock Mountain and the Westcott Device. Vernon opened the door to the Site R laboratory and cautiously peeked inside. It was empty, just as he'd expected. His team wouldn't be arriving till 5pm to start preparations for the experiment. That gave them almost three hours plenty of time to lower the output of the engines and get far away from the Westcott device.
3: Come on, there's no one here.
2: Getting into the facility had been surprisingly easy. They had stopped the car about a mile from Bedrock Mountain and Vernon had forced Corporal Ellis into the trunk of the car at gunpoint, shooting two air holes in the lid so he could breathe. He knew there was a chance that the young corporal could die in there, but he put it out of his mind, telling himself a lot more would perish if he didn't act. As Vernon had suspected, Colonel Harris had not suspended their credentials, so he and Dr DiVali had simply been able to walk in like it was any other day.
4: Please Vernon, I think we should turn ourselves in. That man is going to die if we leave him out there locked in the trunk.
2: I can't
3: think about that now. We have to stop this catastrophe before it's too late.
4: what if you're wrong? I can't go to jail, Vernon.
3: You won't. I'll take the blame. I'll tell them that I kidnapped you. All I need you to do is stand at the door and stop anyone from coming inside. I need I need about 30 minutes to change the output of the engines and reconfigure the control panel.
2: Okay? Prem nodded yes, but he looked far from convinced. Vernon waited till he exited the room before he approached the control panel. He was nervous. Altering the machine's output levels and safety protocols was dangerous and something he'd never planned on doing. But he needed to act, and there was no other way he could think of to stop the experiment. They had to believe the machine didn't work. Then there was no way they would continue to proceed with the development of the device, and everyone would be safe. Vernon removed the plate from the side of the panel and started following the maze of wires, connections and circuitry that linked the plasmatic engines and electromagnetic capacitor to the central monitoring and control system. This was going to take longer than he thought. Just then, the facility's alarm started blaring loudly. Vernon sat up from the control panel and looked around in a panic, his eyes going to the doors of the laboratory. Prem? What's
3: going on out there?
2: Prem? Are you there? Vernon waited, hoping to see Prem come through the doors, but they remained shut. He started to panic. Someone must know they were here. They must have found the guard locked in the trunk, or Colonel Harris must have contacted security and told them not to let them into the facility. Prem, what's going on out there? He got up and ran to the door, ripping it open and motioning for Prem to come inside. But he wasn't there. The hallway was empty. Vernon looked up and down the hall again, bewildered. Prem couldn't have just disappeared, Vernon thought to himself. They must have already found him. There was no other explanation. Vernon closed the doors and locked them, then ran back over to the control panel. Prem must have led the guards away from the lab to buy him more time. He didn't have long, so he had to make this count. Vernon bent down in front of the panel, examining the control systems of the engines. There was not enough time to reconfigure the engines and recalibrate the output instrumentation.
3: There must be a way to do this.
2: Think, Vernon, think. Then it struck him. While he didn't have time to change the four engines, he could change the capacitor. If he dropped the charge, it would hold by 20% and recalibrated the output instrumentation. The capacitor would fire before the engines had hit their full output level and alert his team that there was a problem. But if he upped the charge, the capacitor would hold by 20%, it would not fire, as the engines were designed to cut out at 302,500,000 joules. There would be no way there could be an accident, and no one would ever know he'd sabotage the machine. The Westcott device simply wouldn't work. It'd be a dud, and the Pentagon would walk away from the project forever. Vernon smiled to himself and got to work readjusting the firing sequence of the capacitor. He knew he'd be arrested after this was over. There was no getting away from the crimes he'd committed. But that was okay. Just as long as he could save all those people's lives. Just as long as Prem would be okay. Vernon finished adjusting the capacitor. Then he quickly altered the output instrumentation so it would not read above 1.21 gigawatts and alert the members of his team monitoring the experiment. He closed the panel just as he heard the first bang at the laboratory door. Vernon crossed to the middle of the lab where he stood hands clasped behind his back, a stoic smile across his face. The door burst open in a shower of splinters and dust and a squad of heavily armed soldiers rushed into the room, guns trained at Vernon Harper's head. Gentlemen, I'm glad you could make it. What can I do for you this fine afternoon?
3: On the ground now!
2: Vernon raised his hands as the soldiers rushed at him, the closest striking him across the temple with the butt of his rifle. Ah! Vernon staggered from the ferocity of the blow, then fell to the floor. He tried to get up, managing to push himself up to his elbow before he fell back down again. Vernon could feel warm blood trickling down his face and he tried to speak, but the darkness took him before he could open his mouth.
5: And now, a message from our sponsors.
6: What if what we see every day isn't real? What if reality itself is just a delusion, a cruel trick played by our cosmic creator? When Detective Brady Hitchcock goes in search of a brutal child murder known only as the Monster, he takes a wrong turn through the doors of perception and into an inescapable maze of the mind too terrifying to comprehend. How can you find a killer if you can't even find yourself? The Infernal Circle of Eternal Return. One person's reality is everyone else's nightmare. Only on Baron Sordor's Theater of the Dream.
2: The acrid smell of ammonia filled Vernon's nose. He groaned in his stupor and breathed in again, the pungent, suffocating smell causing him to cough violently and snap his head awake. He blinked away unconsciousness as the soldier standing before him waved the package of smelling salts beneath his nose one more time to be sure.
0: He's coming too.
2: Vernon tried to stand up but couldn't. He was strapped to a metal chair in a cold and dark-looking concrete cell. Where am I? Vernon looked around the room. There were no windows, only a reinforced metal door. It looked like the only way in or out. The space was bare except for a metal table and another chair opposing where he sat. A long mirror ran the length of the back wall. It looked like he was in an interrogation room. Vernon noticed there was a television monitor set up on his stand in the far corner.
3: What's going on? Where is Dr Diwali?
2: The door opened and in walked Colonel Harris. The soldier in the room snapped to attention.
0: It is private. How are you feeling, Dr Harper?
2: My head hurts.
0: I'm not surprised. I hear they gave you quite the greeting.
3: Was that really necessary, Colonel?
0: Sometimes the men get a little overzealous in the treatment of someone who's killed one of their own.
3: Corporal Ellis is dead.
0: He suffocated in the trunk of the car before we could get to him.
3: I. I didn't mean for that to happen, Colonel.
0: It doesn't really matter now, does it? Your sentiments aren't going to bring him back to life now, are they?
2: Vernon shook his head and felt a knot well up in his throat. He hadn't meant to kill that boy it was the last thing he wanted to do. Vernon swallowed hard and did his best not to cry. Through the walls and the floor, he could hear and feel a familiar vibration.
3: Where am I?
0: Don't worry, you're safe. Believe it or not, you're still in the Bedrock Mountain facility, Dr. Harper. I had security rooms built into the lower floors when we were constructing your engine, just in case we encountered a scenario like we have today.
3: What time is it? How long have I been out?
0: Boy, you ask a lot of questions, don't you? But you are a scientist after all, so I guess I shouldn't be at all surprised. It's 4.55am, Saturday the 4th of April, 1955. In five minutes. You're going to make history, Doctor.
3: You're going to test the machine?
0: That's the plan. But before we do... I'd very much like to know what you were doing in the laboratory before we found you.
3: Where is Dr. Diwali?
0: We'll get to him in a minute. I'll ask you again. What were you doing in the laboratory, Doctor?
3: I wasn't doing anything. Where is Dr. Diwali?
0: Three minutes in counting, sir.
3: God damn it, Colonel. I haven't done anything to your precious machine. Now tell me what you've done with Prem.
0: See, I don't believe you, Dr. Harper. I don't believe that you would kidnap and kill one of my men and break into a government facility, all to stop the testing of a machine, and then not sabotage that machine.
3: I don't care what you believe. Did you kill Prem?
0: On the contrary. Your friend has been most helpful.
2: A light turned on behind the mirror on the far wall, and the room behind was illuminated. Vernon could see Prem Diwali standing with a group of soldiers watching on, He looked as if he'd been crying. He reached down and pressed the button for the microphone in front of him.
4: I'm sorry, Vernon. I had no other choice. I had to think about Priya and the baby.
0: Your colleague has been very cooperative. Did you know he was the one who raised the alarm?
3: What did you do?
0: You see, he thought you sounded as crazy as I did. So he told us exactly what you planned to do to the test today. Two minutes and counting, sir.
2: Colonel Harris turned and flicked on the TV monitor behind him. The screen went white as the valves came to life. Then an image of the Site R lab came into focus. He could see the team preparing to fire up the engines and bring them to full power.
3: What did you tell them, Prem? 90
0: seconds.
4: Vernon, I'm sorry. You have to see this from my point of view.
2: What the
3: hell did you tell them?
4: They know everything. About your plan to lower the output levels of of the engines by 20%. About how you rigged the instruments to hide the real output to make it seem like the test was a failure.
2: Vernon's heart felt like it stopped beating and the floor seemed to fall from beneath him. He could hear the one minute alarm sound and see the scientists in the site R lab on the monitor begin firing the engines.
3: You have to stop the
0: test right now. We have corrected your attempt at subterfuge, Doctor, and readjusted the engine output level by 20%.
3: Oh, Jesus, you have to stop. I didn't adjust the engines. I swear it. I didn't have time. Prem's face drained of color.
4: What do you mean you didn't adjust the engines? Vernon, what the hell did you do?
3: I increased the storage capacity of the capacitor. 30 seconds.
4: If you increase the storage and I increase the output,
2: then...
3: It's going to explode. Colonel... Ten. You need to call the control room and Nine. stop the test. The machine is going to explode.
2: Eight. Colonel Harris saw the terror in Seven. the eyes of Vernon Harper and Prem Diwali and Six. picked up the phone.
3: Get the side R control
2: Nine. room
0: on the horn now. For the Four. love of God, Colonel, stop the test. Eight. This is Colonel Harris. I need you to Two. shut down the test immediately.
6: One. Oh, my god. What have I
2: done? Vernon Harper bowed his head as the capacitor discharged. Detonating the Westcott device and most of Bedrock Mountain in a cataclysmic explosion more powerful than anything witnessed in the history of human civilization. The last thought that flashed through his mind was that this was all his doing. If he hadn't listened to that broadcast and tried to change the future, then none of this would have ever happened. Less than half an hour later, radios across the country came to life, all broadcasting the same. Tragic news story.
0: We interrupt your regular programming to bring you this special report. There are unconfirmed reports that shortly after 5 a.m. Saturday morning, there was a huge explosion at the Davis Air Force Base in Nevada, which has apparently engulfed several surrounding towns, including Austin, Eureka, Battle Mountain, and Spring Creek. Details at this point are still coming in, but early reports indicate a massive blast was heard as far as 3,000 miles from the base, and an enormous 100-mile-wide fireball was seen spreading across the sky. Emergency services are reportedly already on the ground. Initial casualties have been estimated to be up to 60,000 people. Authorities are yet to comment, but there is speculation that the blast may be the work of sabotage. We'll have more on this unfolding story within the hour. (laughs)
1: Well, 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 is everyone okay? Shall I bring the smelling salts? (laughs) My word, what a terrifically terrible tale of temporal terror we have all experienced here tonight. I trust that you, my most valued audience, have enjoyed the pleasure of paradoxical perils as much as I have. Unfortunately, this is the end of our show. But fear not. We will open our doors soon for another tale of terror, horror, and suspense. I bid you all farewell until the next episode of Baron Sodor's Theater of the Doomed.
5: Blood Brains and Aliens presents Baron Sordor's Theatre of the Doomed, the broadcast starring Christian Schmid, Felicity Jerd, Yves Verma, Septimus Caton, Lily Bader, and special guest star Jeff Martin as Baron Sordor. Produced by Natalie Harvey, Lily Bader, and Aaron Harvey. Recorded at King Sound Studio. Engineered by Nick Bird. Casting by Citizen Jane Casting. Music by Ildani Lutani. Written by Aaron Harvey. Directed by Natalie and Aaron Harvey. For more, Go to www.bloodbrainsandaliens.com.